Straight out of Finland, this is the Reluctant Theologian Podcast. Oh, so reluctant. I'm your host, Dr. R.T. Mullins from the University of Helsinki. Is the god of classical theism a psychopath? That's a clickbait question, obviously. I'm very aware of that. But here's the thing. I have a new argument for you to consider today, one that is based on a close examination of classical theistic claims in recent psychological literature. So hear me out, and if there's a hole in the argument, help me find it. If you'd like to support the show, you can donate money to my Patreon account or my Ko-fi account. Any donation amount helps me out in so many different ways. I greatly appreciate all the support people have already offered. If you have questions or topics that you'd like to hear on the show, you can send me a message at rtmullins.com. Ready or not, here's a new argument against classical theism. Enjoy. So recently I spoke at the World Parliament of Religions. Tom Ord asked myself and Bethany Solider to form a panel on the topic of divine compassion. There are several themes that Tom wanted us to explore. Here are some of the big questions that we were trying to ask. First, why should we think that God is compassionate? What value does divine compassion have to our personal lives in the face of a broken world? And then finally, what are the moral and practical implications of divine compassion for how we should live our lives? And if we're going to partner with a compassionate God, how should we treat the world that God has created? Those are some big questions. And so what I did for the World Parliament of Religions is I focused on that first question. Why should we think that God is compassionate? So what I want to do today is present a longer version of my talk at the World Parliament of Religions. I'm going to offer some philosophical and biblical reasons for thinking that God is compassionate. In some later episodes, I'll try to expand on these arguments and offer some additional ones. But I just want to get the ball rolling with a very provocative argument. Ultimately, my argument is that if God lacks empathy and compassion, then God is a psychopath. As such, God would be less than perfect. Thus, only a God with empathy and compassion can be perfect. Now, before getting to that argument, I want to address some criticism that this panel discussion received online. So here was the title of our panel discussion. Should Christians be compassionate when classical theism says that God is not? So Tom Ward proposed this panel title to me, and I I just immediately said yes. I did not think this was going to be a controversial title for the panel discussion, because classical theism is very explicit that God is not literally compassionate. But lots of people online said that this panel title was, quote, worthy of derision. I guess I did not think that this was controversial for, well, at least two reasons. First, I was going to argue that the god of classical theism is quite literally a psychopath, I mean, if you want some controversy, that's controversy. And in light of that, I didn't think about the panel discussion's title being remotely controversial. And second, I did not think that the panel discussion's title is controversial because the classical tradition is incredibly explicit that God does not literally have compassion. Now, let me point out something here. When classical theists talk about analogical predication, that is literal predication, not metaphorical predication. So the classical tradition is very clear that God does not literally have compassion. An analogical predication is not a statement that they're making. They're not saying the claim, they're not making the claim that God is analogically compassionate. They're making the claim that God is just outright, not literally compassionate. Now, here's my problem. 
I forgot about the difference between actual classical theism and internet classical theism. Internet classical theists do not like it when I quote actual classical theists saying things that internet classical theists do not want to admit. And I also forgot about the fact that lots of contemporary Christian thinkers are very used to cherry-picking the parts of the classical tradition that they like. They are not used to thinking like a consistent classical theist. Loads of people started making angry posts like, it's just patently false that any classical theist would ever deny that God is compassionate. Well, think about that for a second. Patently false? Really? I mean, have these people never read the classical tradition? Have these people never read J.K. Mosley's classic history of the doctrine of divine impassibility, where Mosley traces the history of all sorts of major classical thinkers saying that God does not literally have compassion or mercy? I mean, apparently these people have not read that book. Have they not read Herbert McCabe's defense of classical theism? In McCabe's book, God Matters, pages 44 through 45, McCabe is explicit that compassion is a feeling of another's suffering. And here's a direct quote from McCabe. He says, God cannot even be said literally to experience this feeling of compassion. Now, McCabe is following the exact same moves that Anselm and Aquinas make when they deny that God is literally compassionate. So a question popped up in my mind. Do you really want to say that no classical theist ever said that God is not literally compassionate? I mean, you're free to say that if you want, but I cannot take you seriously if you do. It is like the continually absurd response that I get to my criticisms of divine simplicity. Some internet classical theist will say, you know, it's patently false that classical theists say that God does not have properties. Well, again, I have to ask the question, is it really patently false? I mean, here's a direct quote from the medieval scholar and contemporary classical theist Catherine Rogers. She says, and this is the direct quote, the medieval view spelled out most clearly by Aquinas, but certainly there in Anselm, is that, strictly speaking, God neither has properties nor is he a property, however unified and exalted. God is simply act. Again, I guess you can say that this is patently false, and you can maintain that no classical theist has ever said such things. I mean, you're free to say that, but you are demonstrating that you have no interest in the truth. Instead, you are demonstrating that you have some sort of truth-be-damned approach to defending classical theism. That's not a good look. I just do not recommend it. Instead, I recommend being intellectually honest enough to affirm what classical theism actually says if you really want to affirm the classical doctrine of God. But let's get back to compassion. So following Anselm and Aquinas, Herbert McCabe says that God does not literally have compassion. Well, you might be thinking, what about the Psalms? I mean, the book of Psalms really likes to affirm that God has compassion. Well, don't worry, because McCabe can explain all of that away. According to McCabe, these statements in the Psalms about God being compassionate, they must be metaphorical, since God does not literally have compassion. All right then, straight from the mouth of a classical theist, God only metaphorically has compassion. Let me give you another example. Consider the classical theist Brian Davies. Look at his book, The Reality of God and the Problem of Evil. So chapter 6 is called, How Not to Exonerate God. According to Davies, one example of false exoneration is to say that God is literally compassionate and suffers with creatures. I mean, I, I guess maybe the Psalms is just engaged in false exoneration, but I'm not, you know. So that's chapter 6. Jump over to chapter 9, page 234. Davies says, I take compassion to be a feeling, or a feeling with, and I certainly do not want to ascribe feelings to God. He cannot have compassion for creatures as someone who is affected by what happens to them. 
Okay, so that's a direct quote from Davies. Well, then Davies goes on to affirm that, at best, we can only say that God has metaphorical compassion. So there you go, straight from the mouth of a classical theist. God is not literally compassionate. At best, God is only metaphorically compassionate. Ah, but, you know, hey, who knows? Maybe those internet classical theists are right. Maybe it really is absurd to suggest that classical theists deny that God is literally compassionate. Or perhaps we should not listen to internet classical theists. Instead, we should listen to actual classical theists and people who know what they are talking about. For me, I have enough respect for the classical tradition to actually read classical theists and engage with what they actually say. I'm not interested in people just making stuff up. That's why I try to get on good scholars on this show who disagree with me, and I try to do dialogues on YouTube with people who actually know what they're talking about. Because I want people to hear from the best thinkers on a variety of topics, and I want people to hear intellectually responsible voices that disagree with me. That way people can make up your own mind. So with that being said, let me get on with this episode. So here's an expanded version of my talk at the World Parliaments of Religions. So to get us started, ask yourself the following question. Have you ever wondered what the inner emotional life of God is like? Within Christian thought, there are conflicting answers to this question. The majority of Christian theologians throughout history have said that God cannot be moved, caused, or influenced by creatures to feel, act, think, or be in any particular way. God is not merely uninfluenced, but rather it is impossible to influence God in any way. And on this classical theistic conception of God, God does not literally have empathy, mercy, or compassion. Instead, God only feels pure, undisturbed happiness. Classical theism calls this the doctrine of divine impassibility. Now, this classical theistic conception of God can be contrasted with models of God such as neoclassical theism, open theism, and panentheism. For today's episode, I'll primarily compare and contrast classical theism with just, you know, the non-classical models or passibility, because it's a lot easier to say that than mention all the other models of God each time I'm talking so in the 20th century, Christian theologians by and large came to reject the classical understanding of God in favor of divine passibility, which affirms that God can be moved or causally influenced by creatures to some extent. And God can literally have empathy, mercy, and compassion. So J.K. Mosley and Frederick von Hugel, they trace this movement back to a series of discussions within the United Kingdom from around the year 1870. Jennifer Hurt says that this passivalist movement is partially explained by the importance of sympathy. According to Hurt, sympathy had become an important concept in moral philosophy before the turn of the century, and the passivalist movement said that a morally perfect God must have sympathy. And so this was a game changer in terms of the debate about the emotional life of God. And I think that Hurt is absolutely right about this point. When you look at these debates at the turn of the century up until 1930, Divine sympathy, divine empathy, and divine compassion, these were the watershed issues. These new passivalists were staunchly affirming that God must have great empathy with creatures, whereas the impassivalists of the time, they were just stomping their feet and denying that this could possibly be true in any literal sense. And when you start to look at the debates after World War II, divine empathy continues to be a watershed issue. But at this point, biblical scholarship had fully jumped on the passivalist side. You start to see entire books written about the major biblical theme of divine suffering and God's compassion. Yet the 21st century has seen a renewed interest in this classical understanding of God as impassable. Hence why I want to focus on these two understandings of God. The God of classical theism who is impassable, 
and the non-classical models of God which say that God is passable. So let me point out where classical theists and non-classical models of God agree. What do they agree on? So both agree that God is a perfect being, or the greatest possible being. No one is doubting that God is perfect. But what each side of the debate disagrees over is which attributes explain why God is perfect. Also, both sides agree that God has emotions. They just disagree over what God's emotional life is like. So you may recall my previous interviews with, prof- with, with Professor Paul Gavriuk and Professor Anastasia Scruton. Both agree that God has emotions, but both disagree over what God's emotional life is like. And in order to understand this, it's going to be helpful to define an emotion. So I say that an emotion is a felt evaluation of a situation. An emotion has two aspects. An emotion has a cognitive aspect, and an emotion has an affective aspect. So an emotion is cognitive in that an emotion mentally represents the world as being a particular way. An emotion is, is it's, it's about something. An emotion construes an object in the world as having certain values. And then an emotion is affective and that there is something that it is like to have that emotion. When you construe an object in the world as having certain values, there's something that it feels like to have that evaluation. You know, it feels good or bad, it feels pleasant or unpleasant. Hence why I said that an emotion is a felt evaluation of a situation. So the classical theist and the non-classical theist, they both agree that God has emotions. They both agree that whatever emotions God has, these emotions must be consistent with God's perfect rationality and perfect moral goodness. As perfectly rational, God acts on the basis of objective reasons. Now, according to T.J. Mawson, God's moral goodness can be understood along three moral dimensions, deontic, consequential, and virtue. Now, the deontic dimension means that God always acts on the basis of what he has most objective reason to do such as fulfilling his obligations, or being appropriately responsive to moral values. So the consequential dimension means that God always brings about the best possible outcome, when there is a best possible outcome. If there's no best possible outcome, then God will bring about a good outcome. Now, before carrying on, I want to note that impassibility seems to have an uneasy fit with these first two moral dimensions. Now remember, an impassable God cannot be moved or influenced by anything outside of himself. Thus, the moral value of creatures cannot play a role in God's actions because that would be an influence outside of God. Now, classical theism says that God's primary motivation for his actions is his own goodness or glory. Since God necessarily has all glory and goodness, it's difficult to see how God could be motivated to perform any contingent action. An impassable God cannot be motivated by your actual or potential value, nor be motivated by your actual or potential well-being. And then further, the classical tradition says that God realizes all possible value or goodness within himself, and in which case God cannot possibly bring about more goodness since he already necessarily realizes all goodness. This does not fit well with the deontic and consequential dimensions of perfect moral goodness. Now, my psychopath argument today is focusing on the virtue dimension of perfect moral goodness. This dimension says that God will display the most perfect virtuous character in all that he is and does. So let's take a closer look at this virtuous character. Just what is involved in having a perfectly virtuous character? Well, according to Laura Ekstrom, this is a direct quote from her, she says, good agents have certain emotional dispositions. 
Now, this is not a controversial claim. You see similar claims in early Christian preaching from people like Gregory of Nyssa when, when they preach about the good of compassion. And you find the claim in Thomas Aquinas, Brian Leftow, and Nicholas Wolterstorff. They all agree that a good person has certain emotional dispositions. If God is perfectly good and virtuous, then God will have certain emotional dispositions. Now, a perfectly good being always does what he has most objective reason to do, and will exhibit the most virtuous character possible. Part of what it means to be perfectly rational is that God always acts for reasons. God is appropriately responsive to reasons for his own actions. And objective moral values, those are one kind of reason for action. Since God is omniscient, God will always know what the objective moral values are. So God's omniscience, perfect rationality, and perfect goodness, they're to be seen as mutually entailing. And this in turn entails that whatever emotions God has, they must be perfect. Emotions, they're felt evaluations to perceived values in the world. As omniscient, God will be able to perfectly and properly know the objective values in the world. As perfectly rational and good, God will have the appropriate emotional evaluation of the objects in the world. And because of this, the classical theist and the non-classical theist can all agree that whatever emotions God has, they will be perfect. So everyone agrees that God will not have irrational or immoral emotional evaluations. But the classical theist and non-classical theist have a big disagreement over God's happiness. The classical theist says that God cannot have any emotion that conflicts with God's pure, undisturbable happiness. The non-classical theist disagrees. What she says is that the moral and rational emotional reaction to sin is often not pure happiness. Instead, God's going to have emotions like revulsion, wrath, sadness, and grief in the face of wickedness and suffering. I mean, you know, all those emotions you see describing God in the Bible. The non-classical theist says that God is as happy as possible given the way the world is, and God's confidence in his own providential plan to satisfy his purposes for creation. But the kind of happiness that non-classical theism claims of God is not some pure, undisturbable bliss. Well, several questions, they arise at this point. I mean, how, how do we get two radically different conceptions of God's emotional life? I mean, how does classical theism get to this impassable God who is in a state of pure bliss? And then how do the non-classical models of God, I mean, how do they get to a God who is influenced by creatures to think and feel certain ways? And basically, just how did we get here? To understand how we got here, I need to point out that emotions are grounded in one's cares and concerns. Sometimes emotions are called concern-based construals in order to emphasize this fact. So allow me to explain. When you have an emotion, you take the object of your emotion to be something that is worthy of your attention and worthy of your action. If you do not care about something, you will not evaluate it as something that is worthy of your attention, nor will you deem it worth acting on behalf of. So when it comes to the difference between classical theism and the non-classical models of God, we have to ask the question, what does God care about? What does God care about? Well, classical theism gives a very clear and consistent answer to this question. First and foremost, God is primarily concerned about himself. Now look, I know that lots of Christians say that God cares about you, that God loves you, God acts on your behalf. That is a very common Christian claim. The problem is that this is inconsistent with impassibility. 
the impassable God cannot be influenced by anything outside of himself for his knowledge, action, or emotions. The cares and concerns of the classical God must be about himself because nothing outside of God can influence him in any way. And the classical tradition is pretty upfront about this when they are being consistent. When the classical theist is saying things that are inconsistent with impassibility, well, that's another story. And so for the sake of being charitable, I'll focus on when the classical theist is being consistent. So according to classical theism, God is the greatest good, and it would be irrational if God concerned himself with anything less than the best. God is perfectly happy because God is perfectly reflecting on himself. I mean, it would be irrational and immoral if God acted on the basis of anything other than himself, at least according to the classical theist. And this is why you will often find classical theists like Aquinas or John Calvin say that all of God's actions are for God's own goodness or glory. This is also why you find classical theists like Augustine or Herman Bavinck say that all of God's love is self-love because nothing else is worthy of God's love. This is why the classical tradition is adamant that God's knowledge can only be self-knowledge. All of God's knowledge is knowledge of his own essence, and all of his actions are for the sake of his own glory. So, let's ask my previous question again. What does God care about? What does God deem to be worthy of his attention and action? Classical theism says that God alone is worthy of his attention and action. God cares about himself, and nothing else can possibly move or influence God to think, feel, or act. Well, the non-classical models of God, they see the situation differently. For example, open and relational theists, they claim that there is nothing irrational or immoral about caring for things that are less than the greatest possible good. It is sometimes morally appropriate to act on behalf of things that have less value than God. I can give a personal example of this. So take my sister Kelly. I think that Kelly's pretty great. But Kelly, look, if you're listening, I do not think that you are as great as God. So personally, you know, I think that God is more valuable than my sister. And in fact, I think that God is the most valuable thing in existence. God is the greatest possible being and has unsurpassable value. So God is the greatest good. I mean, sorry, Kelly, but you're just not the greatest good. I still love you, though, of course, because I still think that my sister Kelly has value. I still think that Kelly is an object that is worthy of my attention and action. Now, for anyone listening, do you really want to say that there is something immoral or irrational about me seeing my sister as an object that is worthy of attention and action? Am I being irrational and immoral when I direct my attention and actions towards my sister? I mean, I mean, come on. I can't take such a suggestion seriously. It's obvious that it is sometimes appropriate to act on behalf of things that have less value than God. So here is what people who affirm passability want to say. They want to say, look, surely God can see that things of lesser value are still worthy of his attention and action. Would it really be immoral and irrational if God thought that creatures were worth acting on behalf of? The passabilist says no. In fact, the Bible says that God deems creatures to be so worthwhile that God is willing to perform self-sacrificial actions on their behalf. According to the passabilist Jordan Wesling, divine self-sacrificial actions are logically ruled out by classical theism, and thus classical theism makes the biblical depiction of God irrational. So the passabilist says that the biblical depiction of God is rational, and thus classical theism should be rejected. So for the passabilist, this brand of sacrifice 
is the lifeblood of Christianity. And anything that falls short of this must be rejected. So at this point, we can start to see a big rift between the classical theist and the non-classical models of God. Each conception of God has a very different understanding of what God cares about. Knowing what God cares about helps us see the big question for today. Does God have compassion? The classical theist says that God does not literally have empathy or compassion, whereas the non-classical theist says that God does literally have empathy and compassion. So we have to just figure out what's going on here. Well, let me define empathy and compassion, and that'll help you understand these questions. Empathy is an epistemic state that one achieves. Oftentimes, earlier philosophical discussions on empathy, it would confuse empathy itself with the mechanisms or the processes by which we achieve empathy. It's really confusing. But most of the more recent literature, it doesn't make that same confusion anymore. So most seem to say that empathy is a state that you can achieve in various ways as you interact with another person and reflect on who they are and what it is like to be them. So when you empathize with someone, you satisfy three conditions. In order to illustrate this, just take two people named Sally and Ben. So Sally empathizes with Ben if and only if she meets three conditions. First, Sally is consciously aware that Ben is having some particular emotion. Second, Sally is consciously aware of what it feels like to have that emotion. And then the third condition, on the basis of Sally's acquaintance with Ben, Sally is consciously aware of what it is like for Ben to have that emotion. Okay, so that's empathy. Why does the God of classical theism not have empathy? Well, as impassable, God cannot be moved or influenced to think, feel, or act in any particular way by anything outside of himself. Condition three says that something about the other person grounds your empathy your empathy is grounded in an awareness of that person. Well, the impassable God cannot have his beliefs or emotions grounded in anything other than himself. So an impassable God cannot satisfy the third condition for empathy. Nor can the impassable God satisfy condition two in most situations. I mean, when you look at the emotional lives of creatures, they are absolutely nothing like a state of pure, undisturbable bliss that is grounded entirely in oneself. I mean, our emotions are nothing remotely like that. So God cannot understand what it is like to have any of the emotions that we have. The only emotion that God understands is a pure, undisturbable bliss that is grounded entirely in himself. So the God of classical theism cannot satisfy two of the three conditions for empathy. Hence, does not have empathy. So the next question, why does the God of classical theism not have compassion? What is compassion? So empathy is merely an epistemic state that one achieves. I mean, it's one thing to empathize with someone, and it's another thing to respond to the knowledge gained from empathy. It, look, it's, it's common to empathize with someone and completely disagree with how that person thinks and feels. 
I mean, we often say, you know, I understand why you feel that way, but I see things differently. I mean, the same is true for God. A passable God can look at the wicked sadist and say, I understand why you feel that way, but I see things very differently. This is one reason why Linda Zygzebski says that perfect moral judgments require empathy. In order to be a perfect judge, one needs to have a full understanding of why someone thinks and feels as they do. And empathy is exactly that kind of knowledge. According to Anastasia Scruton, compassion is one kind of response on the basis of empathy. Compassion is a beneficent action towards someone on the basis of having empathy with that person. And Anselm offers a similar definition of compassion. You first empathize with that person and come to understand what it is like for them to think and feel the way that you do. And on this basis, you are moved to perform an action for that person's well-being and flourishing. When it comes to compassion, there is an explanation for your compassionate action that is grounded in empathy. It is your empathy and your response to that empathetic knowledge that explains why you acted in a compassionate and loving way. Okay, so here we go. Since empathy is based on compassion, the impassable God of classical theism cannot have compassion. The God of classical theism has no empathy and thus cannot be compassionate. And classical theists like Anselm and Brian Davies, they're very clear on this point. God does not literally have empathy and compassion. And the 17th century theologian Girolamo Zanchius, he's explicit that this is a good thing. It is a good thing that God does not have compassion or empathy. Because if God did, then God would not be impassable. Look, look. so in Zanchius's mind, he says impassibility is a great-making property. And so it's going to be better for God to be impassable than for God to be literally compassionate. So let me pause for a moment to reflect where we are in the conversation. So thus far, I've explained why the God of classical theism does not literally have empathy and compassion, because this is because it is impossible for God to be moved or influenced by anything outside of himself. And God's only cares and concerns can be about himself and his own glory. Also, again, it's worth pointing out that analogical predication is literal predication. Analogical predication is not metaphorical predication. So if some internet classical theist starts saying God is analogically compassionate, well, that's just confused. When Anselm and Aquinas say that God is only metaphorically compassionate, they are not speaking in analogical terms. So this brings me to the next question I want to address. Is the classical conception of God really satisfying? Is that really what a perfect being looks like? Is this the emotional profile of a perfectly virtuous being? Now, look, obviously the classical theist is going to say, yes, of course, that's, you know, this is the profile of a virtuous being. And then, of course, the neoclassical theist, the open theist, and some panentheists, they're going to say no. They think that a God who lacks empathy and compassion is less than perfect. But, of course, the classical theist can ask some really important questions at this point. Why should we think that God has empathy and compassion? What would be so great about a God with empathy and compassion? I mean, those are legitimate questions from the classical theist. So I want to look at some reasons for thinking that God does have empathy and compassion. Here are three reasons. So one reason comes from Linda Zagzebski. She says that empathy gives God more knowledge and thus better satisfies the claim that God is omniscient. The classical theist Herbert McCabe says that it is unnecessary for God to have empathy in order to be omniscient. He just asserts that God already knows everything there is to know, and so thus there's no need for empathy. 
But Zygzebski disagrees. She points out that there's a great deal more to know, and an impassable God cannot know a huge swath of facts about the world. The knowledge gained through empathy is a kind of experiential knowledge that is not reducible to mere propositional knowledge. If God is really going to be omniscient, then God needs to have a perfect, empathetic grasp of all creaturely conscious states. Without empathy, God cannot have that kind of knowledge. So the first argument says this, an empathetic God has more knowledge than an impassable God. Thus, an empathetic God is greater in knowledge than any impassable being. So here's the second reason. So the second reason comes from Laura Ekstrom, who says that God's perfect moral goodness and rationality entail that God has certain emotional dispositions. I mentioned this claim earlier, and I pointed out that people like Brian Leftow and Aquinas, they agree with this claim. Perfect goodness and rationality entail a certain emotional profile. So for example, the classical theist Thomas Aquinas says that a virtuous person must be disturbed by witnessing something evil. Of course, Nicholas Wolterstorff points out an inconsistency here in Aquinas' thinking. Aquinas does not carry this reasoning about virtuous people over to the impassable God. This might make you think that Aquinas' God is not virtuous. Now, as Leftout points out, Aquinas does think that God is perfect in virtue. So we have to ask what's going on here. I mean, it, it, it seems like the infallible Aquinas made a lapse in reasoning here. But let's just agree with Aquinas that a perfectly good and rational being is virtuous and has a particular emotional profile. What is that emotional profile? Laura Ekstrom says that unsurpassable compassion is a virtuous disposition that a perfect being must have. So if God is perfect, then God is going to be compassionate. Okay, so let me mention a third and final reason for thinking that God has empathy and compassion. There are other reasons, but I'll just, you know, just want to stick to these three. So this third reason is that the Bible consistently describes God as a passable being who is rich in empathy and compassion. The Bible knows absolutely nothing of an impassable God. Now, recent scholarship on perfect being theology and the philosophy of Judaism is quite clear about the biblical portrayal of God. The, the Hebraic philosophical outlook is quite clearly passabilist. The philosophical view of God that the biblical authors wish to put forward is of a God who suffers, has empathy, has compassion, and so on. The biblical authors really do want you to believe that God is rich in empathy, compassion, and mercy. So those are the three reasons for thinking that God has empathy and compassion. Now, how do classical theists respond to these arguments? Well, classical theists find these arguments less than convincing. So when it comes to omniscience, the classical theist will say that God knows that you have an emotion, and they'll say that's just sufficient for omniscience. The classical theist can maintain that God does not need to know what it is like for you to have an emotion. All that matters is that God knows that the proposition Sally is sad because she has cancer. All that matters is that God knows that that proposition is true. God doesn't need to know what it is like for Sally to feel sad about her cancer. And this is the move you see from Herbert McCabe and Brian Davies. The classical theist can also say that God does not need to have compassion in order to be perfectly good and virtuous. The classical theist maintains that God's reasons for acting, they need not be grounded in some emotional acquaintance with Sally. God always acts for his own goodness and glory, and in some mysterious way this somehow entails good things for Sally? It's not really clear how that works out to me, but, you know, whatever. I'll grant it to the classical theist for the moment. And then finally, when it comes to Scripture, well, the classical theist has an answer here as well. Classical theists like Anselm and John Calvin say that the impassable God intentionally reveals himself as empathetic and compassionate in order to draw us closer to himself. 
Even though God has no empathy or compassion, God intentionally reveals himself as being rich in empathy and compassion in order to have a relationship with us. So when Lamentations 3.22 says that God's compassion never fails, what this really means is that God never has compassion. God just tells you that he has compassion so that you will draw closer to him. This is sometimes called the doctrine of divine accommodative language. Okay, so let's think about this for a second. Are these classical responses really satisfying? Uh, Let's start with the accommodative language. Someone like John Peckham will point out that accommodative language is not meant to be deceptive. When we condescend to speak to our children, we still try to speak truthfully to them. A good parent does not consistently describe herself as the exact opposite of what she is like in order to draw her child closer to her. She may speak in metaphors that do not perfectly map onto reality. You know, parents do that all the time. A good parent may even speak hyperbolically at times. But if she is a good person, she will not consistently tell her child that she is compassionate when she quite literally has no compassion. So what the passivalist can say is that the classical approach to scripture is not really accommodation, but is instead deception. There's something deceptive about an impassable God consistently revealing himself as empathetic and compassionate in order to draw us closer when God knows perfectly well that it is impossible for him to be empathetic and compassionate. And this brings me back to the classical claim about omniscience. The impassable God cannot satisfy two of the three conditions for empathy. God cannot satisfy the affective aspects of empathy, but can only partially satisfy the cognitive aspect of empathy. An impassable God cannot know what it is like for Sally to be sad about her cancer, but God can know that it is true that Sally is sad about her cancer. How should the passivalist respond to this point? Well, the passivalist can ask the classical theist how the impassable God knows this. How do you know that? It's not like God just gets the knowledge for free. I mean, theists of all stripes, they need to describe God's cognitive powers in a way that actually explains how God knows things. Otherwise, we're just using pure magic to defend our views, and that's, that's not good. Well, but look, the classical tradition has made an attempt at this. And contemporary theologians, they need to do the same. They need to look and see what the classical tradition has done. So to be clear, the classical theist does have an answer to this question about how the impassable God knows that Sally is sad about her cancer. So recall that the impassable God's knowledge of Sally's emotional state cannot be grounded in Sally, Because if we said that, then God would be influenced and moved by things outside of himself, and impassibility says that's not possible. So the classical theist affirms that all of God's knowledge is self-knowledge of his own nature and action. In order to avoid God's knowledge about Sally being based on Sally, 
The classical tradition has affirmed the doctrine of universal divine causality. According to the classical theist Catherine Rogers, this doctrine says that, here's a direct quote, God is the immediate cause of the existence of anything with ontological status at the time it exists. Okay, so that's, that's the doctrine of universal divine causality. What this means is that God knows what emotion Sally is having about her cancer because God knows that he is directly and immediately causing Sally to have that emotion, and God knows that he is directly and immediately causing Sally to have cancer. That's the classical answer. Now, at this point, it's worth pausing to consider what the impassable view of God looks like. The God of classical theism is grandiose in that he only cares about himself. The God of classical theism does not have any empathy or compassion, but reveals himself as having empathy and compassion in order to draw people into a relationship with him. And the God of classical theism directly and immediately causes humans to have certain emotions without sharing in those emotions through empathy. What kind of person is this God? In contemporary psychological literature, there are certain people that consistently fail to satisfy two of the three conditions of empathy, and yet know that others have certain emotions because they are causing those people to have certain emotions. In the psychological literature, these people are described as portraying themselves as being rich in empathy in order to draw others into a relationship, all despite the fact that they lack empathy. In the psychological literature, these people are called psychopaths. Psychopaths are individuals who lack empathy, they're grandiose, they're manipulative, and they're deceptive. This brings me to the conclusion of my analysis. The god of classical theism is a psychopath. The impassable god lacks empathy and compassion, directly causes others to suffer emotionally, and reveals himself in deceptive ways in order to draw humans closer to himself. That's a psychopath, plain and simple. And I take it as obvious that a psychopathic being is less than perfectly good and rational. Thus, I take it as obvious that a psychopath cannot be the greatest possible being. And so for this reason, we should reject the God of classical theism and instead affirm a God who actually has empathy and compassion like the Bible describes. But before closing, let me point out two ways for the classical theist to try to defend her model of God. The first way to try to defend classical theism here is with the Incarnation. I mean, a classical theist who is also a Christian will say that God can have compassion if God is incarnate. The human nature of Jesus is compassionate. So the classical theist might say, God the Son is compassionate in virtue of having a human nature that is compassionate. Well, the Incarnation is a complicated matter. I have a paper called Classical Theism, Christology, and the Two Sons' Worry that addresses this, this, this whole matter. I argue that a Neo-Chalcedonian Christology plus impassibility entails Nestorianism. Basically, impassibility and the other uh, classical attributes, they just rule out the very possibility of an Incarnation. So I don't think the Incarnation is going to help out in passability on this point. Uh, you can find this paper on my website. I've also done some YouTube videos on this. So you can check out my videos if you want to see some of the details for that argument. So let me end by examining the second kind of way that a classical theist can respond to my argument. To be sure, the proponent of impassibility will wish to distance herself from the claim that God is a psychopath. I mean, this is because of the moral connotations that we often associate with the emotional profile and behavior of human psychopaths. They just do not fit the emotional profile of a perfectly virtuous person. So here's what the classical theist can do. She can point out that there are some differences between the impassable God and human psychopaths. So for example, she might point out that human psychopaths, they, they can have some degree of success in satisfying the conditions for empathy. Now, human psychopaths, they do disproportionately struggle to satisfy these conditions of empathy relative to the general human population, 
But human psychopaths, they are at least able to satisfy the conditions for empathy every now and then, whereas it is impossible for the impassable God to have empathy. So the, what the classical theist can do is say there is an important difference between human psychopaths and the impassable God because a human psychopath can at least sometimes have empathy. The emotional profile of human psychopaths is not exactly the same as the impassable God's emotional profile, precisely because it is impossible for God to have empathy. And I think that's right. So I'll go one step further to help out the classical theist here. She can also say that human psychopaths do not have the ability to directly and immediately cause all of the suffering that we see in the world. That is a big difference between human psychopaths and the god of classical theism. Given universal divine causality, God is directly and immediately causally responsible for anything with ontological status. Mental states like agony and physical states like pain, they have ontological status. So God is directly and immediately causally responsible for all of the pain and agony in the world. I mean, no human psychopath is capable of that. And in fact, my guess is that many human psychopaths would be horrified by such things. So the classical theist is right to say that there is a big difference between God and human psychopaths. Well, it's at this point that I, that I reply that this is not a very satisfying rejoinder. All this really tells me is that the impassable God is consistently better at being a psychopath than humans are. That's not a really great result for a model of God. Also, it will do no good for the classical theist to stomp her feet and insist that God is perfectly good and loving. This is because part of the solid philosophical analysis of what it means to be perfectly good and loving excludes the exact emotional profile and psychopathic behavior that classical theism says God has. Sure, the classical theist will try to get out of this by saying that evil is a privation of the good, and God is only directly and immediately causing good things. I'll do a follow-up episode at some point on why I find the privation account of evil to be less than satisfying. For now, I'll just say that the privation account of evil does not really change the situation. Given universal divine causality, God is still directly and immediately causing Sally's cancer, and God is directly causing Sally to feel sad about it. I mean, no amount of privation gloss will change that fact. I mean, at best, the privation gloss just forces me to talk in a really weird way where I have to say things like, God is directly causing Sally to be less good than she could be. I mean, try telling that to Sally when she asks why God is causing her to have cancer. Well, yes, my dear Aunt Sally, you see, God is not directly causing you to have cancer. He is merely directly causing you to have a particular level of goodness that is less than the best, and we conventionally call that cancer. Hmm. Man, I can already foresee the unsurpassable amount of comfort that Sally will feel upon hearing this. She will be telling all of her friends to sign up for a class on Augustinian grief counseling. I'm sure of it. Let me get back to the point. As I see it, it is better to affirm that God has maximal empathy and compassion than to say that God is maximally psychopathic. We all have to ask ourselves difficult questions about the entailments of our conceptions of God. All I'm saying is that if your view of God entails that God is a psychopath, you might want to reconsider a few things. And there you have it, another episode of the Reluctant Theologian Podcast. Stay tuned for more episodes on classical theism, creation out of nothing, and so much more.